This is an ABC News special, COVID-19, what you need to know. Here is ABC News correspondent Aaron Katursky. This is expected to be the week we have been warned about for more than a month. The peak of infections and deaths in New York, where an overloaded hospital system may not be able to cope. There may be enough supplies to last for a few days, but as the governor of New York put it, everyone is running out of everything. Consider this. In the last week alone, New York City hospitals went through 1.3 million surgical gowns. The mayor said they may need double that number this week. The death toll is still rising, but the rate of increase has been flat for the last couple of days. Hospitalizations and admissions to the intensive care unit are down. Trends the governor called hopeful but inconclusive. And he said it didn't necessarily matter because hospitals are still near the breaking point. Matthew Hadley is an ER nurse at Lenox Hill Hospital in New York. Matthew, what has it been like there? You know, it's every day is a little bit different than the day before. Um, you you leave your shift um, with sort of a an idea of what's happened in the last 12 hours or so. And when you come back, it can be a completely different landscape. And I can only imagine the unyielding flow of patients given where we are with the infection rate in this city. It's true. I mean, we at Lenox Hospital um, had sort of read the writing on the wall several weeks ago and started to do things uh, to put uh, motions in place to be prepared for what we thought might occur. Obviously, none of us could have expected what we're actually seeing, uh, but we were able to staff up, uh, bring in both um, nurses from uh, traveler companies, which is a wonderful resources that's being provided to us, as well as identify within our own ranks nurses who might have um, skills or specialty levels that could be repurposed to units that we knew were going to be harder hit. Uh, in addition to that, a lot of creative minds from our engineers to our leadership to, you know, all of the the, uh, the facilities managers and things like that, they identified areas of the hospital that we could repurpose and turn into units so that we could actually house more patients. And that has been round the clock for the last couple of weeks, and it even continues till now. We've, um, we've opened several surge units in the last week or two, and we are in the process of opening four more before the end of this week. What an incredible sprint to keep up, though, given the, the pace. I mean, you're absolutely right. And what we always say or what we've been saying as medical care providers up to this point is, you know, it's a marathon and not a sprint. Well, now it is. It is a sprinting marathon. We are definitely all at max capacity at all times, running to full tilt, making sure that we are staying ahead of this as best as we possibly can. Is this sustainable? Huh. So is it sustainable in the long term? I think the only way it maintains sustainability is if we continue to adjust as we move forward. So what we do today is sustainable for today. And the minute that we sit back and say, oh, we have it figured out, oh, what we're doing is working, is the minute that we're going to start to see it crumble and crack. We have to constantly be reevaluating. We have to constantly be reassessing. But that is nursing and medicine in, in general. We, we're, we're always looking at, at, at the scope and being like, all right, what's working? What isn't? What do we need to change? A view from the front line from ER nurse Matthew Hadley at Lenox Hill Hospital. The death toll for the United States has reached a grim milestone, crossing 10,000. Those deaths are primarily in urban areas where the pandemic has engulfed the big cities. 
Viruses, though, tend to trickle into more rural areas, and there is a new trend emerging. That is outbreaks in places like northern Mississippi and small counties in Alabama. We're joined now by Dr. Sue Feldman from the University of Alabama at Birmingham, where she is part of a team that's trying to identify where coronavirus is spreading in those rural areas that are generally underserved by the healthcare system. This is called HelpBeatCovid19.org. Dr. Feldman, what exactly is it? Yeah, sure. So HelpBeatCovid19.org is a symptom tracker for people in rural areas. So the concern with uh, with COVID-19 in rural areas is that um, the, lots of times people in the South, deep South, uh, rural areas have underlying health conditions. And so many of these people are positioned for getting COVID-19 and then having poor outcomes or poor recovery rates. We know it, we see it, and help beat COVID-19 will help us get in front of it. Alabama was one of the more slow states to adopt some of the social distancing policies that other states have adopted. Yes, I think that's probably true. And and some of the reason why Alabama might have been a little bit slower to adopt some of the, uh, the physical and social distancing requirements is because of the, the slowness in the spread here. And so areas like New York and Los Angeles, uh, it has hit a little bit with a little bit faster and with a little bit more fury than it has here yet. Yet being the uh, the operative. So you're trying to get ahead of it with this with this help beat COVID-19 dot org. Explain how it works. So what happens is uh, is that somebody goes to the website, helpbeatcovid19.org, and uh, they answer two simple, qu- two simple questions. Are they feeling well or are they not feeling well? And then based off of how they answer those questions, they go in and answer a series of questions. The series of questions are around uh, symptoms and around underlying conditions uh, that might make uh, the outcomes a little bit worse were they were if they were to get COVID-19. Then uh, what we ask is for people to come back every three, five, seven days, and then they get a shorter uh, version of the same survey. So if they don't have any symptoms, it's about a 10-second survey. Um, however, what we know is that is that after time they may start to show some symptoms. What we're trying to do with help beat COVID nineteen is get in front of those symptoms that effectively could help doctors identify a hot spot at any given moment. That's exactly right. And so our focus is really trying to help public health officials get into areas where normally they may have uh, they may have to have boots on the ground in that area. And what help Co- help beat COVID nineteen does is give them a view into some areas without actually having to be there. Dr. Sue Feldman at the University of Alabama at Birmingham. And in addition to the Deep South, there are concerns about the virus moving through certain parts of the Midwest. ABC's Ryan Burrow is with us from Chicago. Ryan, they're trying to ramp up the testing. Yeah, that's what we're seeing. And every morning they're opening up these drive up testing locations. And I was at one this morning on Chicago's northwest side. And uh, what they're doing is allowing not only first responders, not only frontliners, uh, but for the first time, they're allowing anyone 60 or older with any kind of health conditions. Uh, They're also allowing anyone 18 or older 
showing symptoms of COVID-19 to drive up, get the test. Unfortunately, they're not going to know whether or not they're positive for a few days. But um, for some of these people, uh, this is their only opportunity to get the test and find out if perhaps they've been exposed to someone. Uh, Maybe they work at a hospital. Maybe they work in a nursing facility. Uh, The other was a a Chicago police detective, and she told me uh, that someone she works close with tested positive, and uh, she now has a a scratchy throat and a cough. So she just wanted to get checked out and uh, see if she too has COVID-19. And Ryan, elsewhere in your region, there was supposed to be a primary, an in-person primary in Wisconsin that nobody seemed to want, but until now, nobody could figure out how to stop. The governor has since taken some action. Yeah. As of Monday morning, there was still going to be in-person voting, which was stressing out a lot of mayors, a lot of political leaders in the state, because you obviously don't want people congregating in the current environment. And the other big issue they were having is staffing some of these polling locations uh, because you may not have a lot of seniors involved. You may not have people who who come out. And so the National Guard was called in in Milwaukee alone, Aaron, 500,000 people, uh, they only were going to open up five polling locations. Obviously, uh, that's not great for social distancing if you have thousands of people coming in to in-person vote. Uh, The governor had desperately been trying to get legislators on board to get them to shut this down and move it back or create an absentee voting only scenario, but uh, he was getting no help from legislators and and then Monday afternoon uh, he stepped in and signed an executive order suspending all in-person voting on Tuesday, April 7th. He's calling legislators to come in Tuesday, hold a special session to address a new election date. Uh, Legislators have already kind of passed on postponing this, so uh, we'll see how it all shapes out. But uh, as of right now, the governor's telling people, don't go in and vote. We're going to push this back to a later date. ABC's Ryan Burrow. And coming up, my colleague Amy Robach speaks with our chief medical correspondent, Dr. Jennifer Ashton, to answer more of your questions about coronavirus. I'm Aaron Katursky. You're listening to an ABC News special. You're listening to an ABC News special. COVID-19, what you need to know. Here is ABC News correspondent, Amy Robach. As we zero in on precisely what we know about this deadly pandemic, with me, as always, is ABC chief medical correspondent, Dr. Jen Ashton, bringing us some much needed clarity on where we stand. And Dr. Jen, there's a lot of talk about the use of hydroxychloroquine as a possible treatment. What do we know about that right now? This is arguably the the hottest topic, definitely of the weekend. So let's break it down when you talk about this medication. First of all, what we know about hydroxychloroquine. This is an old, cheap and safe drug. It's been used to prevent malaria. It's also used for people with lupus and rheumatoid arthritis. And there is a rare but possible cardiac side effect known as long QT syndrome, which can be fatal, but it is extremely, extremely rare. So that's under what we know category. And then we're learning a lot more. What are we learning about the trials that have been done on this drug? Well, there have been very limited data published thus far, but there have been some small trials published out of China and France that show some small improvement in patients who are mild to moderately ill with COVID-19 who are given hydroxychloroquine. They seem to show a shorter duration of symptoms, and there may be the theory for its mechanism of action, some antiviral and immune suppressive Mm -hmm 
effects of this medication. So there is a theory as to how we think it works. And talk about what we don't know about the use of this drug for COVID-19. Well, you've heard Dr. Fauci say it before. When you use a medication that's FDA approved to treat one thing and then you're using it for something else, especially in sick patients, what we don't know yet is if the dosing or timing of administration of this medication is different for patients who are sick with COVID-19. And we also don't know if it has a role in prevention. So prophylactically given to help reduce someone's risk of getting sick with COVID-19, all of that is yet to be determined. So there's still a lot that we don't know. All right, you're going to be answering a lot of our questions in just a bit. We turn now to ABC's Rachel Scott in Washington with all of the latest headlines. Hey, Amy, let's get to some of the stories we are watching right now. Beginning tomorrow through early May, American Airlines slashing even more flights to and from the New York City area, joining United Airlines in further reducing the routes. And overseas now, a glimmer of improvement. Italy reporting its lowest death toll in two weeks. Health officials say the daily death toll is dropping each day and new cases are growing at the lowest percentage since the pandemic began. And the big cats hit the Bronx Zoo reporting a four-year-old tiger named Nadia tested positive for COVID-19. The zoo saying six other tigers and lions have also developed dry coughs. The zoo's chief vet says the test is not the one used on humans and all of the animals are expected to recover. Amy? That is some good news there, Rachel. Thank you so much. Florida's Ron DeSantis became one of the last of the few remaining governors in the U.S. to issue a statewide stay-at-home order amid the coronavirus pandemic. Mayor of the city of Tampa, Jane Castor, was one of the first to take action, issuing her own stay-at-home order back on March 26th. Mayor Castor is joining us now. Thank you, Mayor, for being with us. And I want to ask you, what made you issue your stay-at-home order so early on? And then why do you think it took your governor so long to do the same? Um, Well, everything that I had seen from the literature from other countries, the one thing that stood out was the distance separation. You know, the, the issue with this virus was more so in the ease with which it was transmitted and the fact that it could remain silent than it was in some cases in the severity of the virus itself. And so that was something I knew that we needed to take action on in order to protect all of our citizens in the Tampa Bay area. And as far as the uh, governor, you know, this is a new issue for all of us. There is no playbook. So we are learning as we go. I wish that he had called for a statewide uh, safer at home order earlier on, but it's done now so that other counties surrounding us won't travel into our city and and possibly infect citizens within the city of Tampa. Yeah, the governor's order now supersedes all local orders. What's your reaction to that? Well, you know, that's fine, too, because uh, we need that uniformity, but it really doesn't make any difference for uh, the citizens of Tampa. In essence, it's the same. I I just try to explain it to everyone because there's a million questions you can ask. The overarching intent is to have that distance separation. That is the overarching intent of it. And I tell everyone in our community, act as if you have the virus and then, um, you know, act accordingly after that. So making sure you're keeping that distance separation and following those simple hygiene uh, steps. Yeah, let's talk about your community, the city of Tampa. How are you doing right now? Are you getting what you need from the state and then from the federal government as well? Yes, we're doing well here in the city of Tampa and in the entire Tampa Bay area. You know, we work so well here together. We always come together as a, as a, a region and we are getting what 
what we can from the state. We're not getting what we need because the state doesn't have those supplies. And that's an issue nationwide. I've, I've said I spent 31 years in law enforcement. I was a chief of police here in Tampa. And I have said that in my time in emergency management, I've never seen this level of unpreparedness from the federal government. So the states and the counties and the municipalities are doing what they can to provide the supplies for testing and for taking the, the uh, swabs and getting those, those uh, tests done. Well, and I have to say, I, I love how you are choosing some very modern ways to communicate with the city of Tampa. <laughs> My teenage daughters would really appreciate this. You started a TikTok page that has videos reminding people to wash their hands and stay inside. There you go. Well, that shout out goes to uh, our social media team. I'm 60 years old and I, I have zero ability in that area. But uh, my two 21 year old sons are impressed as well. But, you know, it's getting in touch with the with the younger uh, members of our community, because as I once felt, they're young and invincible. And so they're the ones that can be those silent carriers and they can be infecting those individuals in their homes that may be in the high-risk categories. So we're doing everything that we can to connect with them. Mayor Castor, thank you so much for joining us and stay safe. With the number of coronavirus cases spiking here in the U.S., medical experts expect a ventilator shortage as hospitals become increasingly overwhelmed by patients sickened with the virus. Recently, Ventec Life Systems and General Motors combined forces seeking to change that. And joining us now is the chief executive officer of Ventec Life Systems, Chris Keipel. Chris, thanks so much for being with us. For those who aren't familiar, talk about why these ventilators are so difficult to make and why they are in such short supply right now. It's easy to make a pump, and, and that's essentially what a ventilator is. It's a pump that helps you breathe. The real challenge is a ventilator is trying to replace what you and I do so easily every day, which is naturally breathe in and breathe out and change that breathing pattern based on the needs of what we're doing. Uh, with COVID-19 patients, uh, they're at the extreme ends of what a ventilator is capable of doing. Ventilation isn't just a pump. It's replacing your breathing systems for a really, really sick patient. And that's really a science that takes years to develop with really accurate monitors, really accurate uh, pumps that can deliver air in a very precise way. And then there's the art form of it in terms of really making sure the patient is comfortable. And for a COVID-19 patient who's on a ventilator for sometimes 10 days or longer, the accuracy of that ventilator that's delivering air for very sensitive lungs is critical to their life expectancy and helping them to survive. Yeah, it truly is a matter of life or death. And we mentioned you're partnering with GM to increase that ventilator production, but explain how a car manufacturer is helping make ventilators. We know our device and we have a unique solution for COVID-19. We tend to think about production in the hundreds or thousands. General Motors thinks about production in the millions. They have an incredible expertise in manufacturing. And together, that partnership is allowing us to think about scaling a very precise device in a very different way. And that outside-the-box thinking is exactly what we need right now to meet the demand for COVID-19. Do you have an idea of just how many ventilators you'll be able to turn out in a period of time? We're going from hundreds a month to thousands a month. Our initial plan is to get to 10,000-plus units a month with capabilities to ramp up beyond that if necessary. And we hope we don't have to do that. But with the capabilities of General Motors, we can rise to the challenge. Chris Keipel, CEO of Ventec Life Systems, thank you so much for being with us today.
Coming up next, right here on What You Need to Know, some support for parents and kids struggling with schoolwork online from a principal. We'll be right back. You're listening to an ABC News special, COVID-19, What You Need to Know. Once again, here is ABC News correspondent Amy Robach. Welcome back. With schools closed across the country, educators are forging new ways of teaching from afar. Joining us now to walk through how her school is handling this big change is Homer Drive Elementary School Principal Dr. Belinda George. Dr. George, thanks for being with us today. And, you know, schools have gone to learning online now, but we know that 90 percent of your students qualify for a free lunch. So this was something that so many mayors were grappling with when they were deciding whether or not to close schools. How do you handle the situations where kids may not have the technological devices needed? They don't they might not have access to a Wi-Fi connection. They might not have access to a hot meal. So our district of Beaumont ISD has partnered with T-Mobile and it's an award that they gave us where every kid gets a MiFi hotspot. So the district also sent out a survey so that those um, that need um, technology, they can have a better assessment of what their needs are. And those that don't have technology, the district has also offered paper packets for every grade level. So they're working with the community as well. Trying to fit everyone's needs. I love, Dr. George, you created an acronym for Corona to help guide students and their families during this pandemic. So if you can walk us through what that acronym stands for you and for your students. So Corona is stay calm. The C is for stay calm through all of this. The O is for organize. Organize your your thoughts, your thinking process. The R is for rest. Get lots of rest during this time because it can be, um, you know, a daunting task getting through all of this. The other O is for organize your life. Right now we have to rethink how we live. The N is for navigate your way through this because this is new territory for all of us. So just getting through this together. And then the A is for accomplishment. If we do all of that, we'll accomplish this and we'll beat this disease. That's beautiful. I love it. You're also bringing some light into your students' lives in these dark times. Tell everyone about what you're doing and why this is so important to you. So I've always done the tucked in Tuesdays, even hmm. before the pandemic, and it's where I wear pajamas and I read to the kids online uh, on Facebook Live, and I bring on authors as well so they can meet authors. And just recently there was a school, I think it was W.O. Gray Elementary, they did a parade and I saw it online. So. I sent out a flyer uh, via Facebook and did a call out and we did a parade through the um, neighborhood. So it was nice seeing all of the kids. Yeah, no contact, but the teachers and the students at least got to see each other and smile and wave. And I know that means so much for parents who may be struggling helping their own kids with schoolwork. What advice would you give to the parents who are trying to help? Uh, stay in touch with your schools, lean on your school. If this is a time where that gap it needs to close. So relying on your school district, the resources that are put out, staying in touch with those teachers, uh, asking for help, not being afraid to say you don't know will be crucial during this time. And also just answering those calls when we call out because that's the only way that we can communicate. We're also using Zoom with all of the safeguards in place so that we can communicate with our scholars. And that's also how we're communicating with our staff as well. Well, we appreciate all that you do and that your staff does to help our children through these times. Dr. George, thank you so much for joining us today. 
We turn once again to our Dr. Jen Ashton. Dr. Jen, thanks for being with us. We'll get right to the first question. As a service dog user, I don't let people pet my dog for a number of reasons, one being the transmitting of dirt, germs, and viruses. Should we consider pet fur a surface to keep clean? This is a great question, Amy, and specifically about the fur, let's say, of dogs right now, because they're usually out more than cats are. Um, Not their nose and mouth, but fur. We don't know how long this virus can live on fur. Remember, we don't even know how long it can live on fabric yet. Basic common sense precautions. If your dog, especially a service dog, is out in public a lot, might be a good idea to clean off the paws when you come back inside. And again, you don't want to use anything harsh on the dog's fur or skin, but just hosing it off, showering it off, putting it in the bathtub, if possible, once a day might be a good idea. But right now, again, no firm data on that, unfortunately. But great question. Okay, we have been talking so much about the shortage of PPE for hospital workers. So our next question asks this. Can hospitals and first responders use expired and 95 masks. Their use depends on two things, both starting with the letter F, fit and their filtration ability. If they get expired, both of those things potentially can be compromised. So what we are seeing now, especially in hospital environments, is we're seeing hospitals decontaminate or try to sanitize those masks. Again, that's never been studied or tested. But right now, since we're in an all-hands-on-deck situation, something is probably better than nothing. Right. That's a fair point. Next question. I am wondering if the recommended immunizations for children have a correlation to their general resistance to COVID-19. We really don't know that either, but here's what's really important. Remember, we're ending the influenza season right now, and this year's flu vaccine, moderately effective as it usually is, we we don't think that children are not getting infected with coronavirus. We just think they're less likely to manifest symptoms. So there's no evidence right now that any other vaccine will cross-protect them against this coronavirus. Speaking of shortages, this next question, in the event we can't find Lysol wipes, are dish soap and water okay for virus removal from groceries and packages? Anything that cleans or disinfects in your home is thought to be effective against this virus. So people can mix rubbing alcohol with a little water, put it in a spray bottle. That's probably effective. Soap and water, definitely effective. Really, anything that you would be using in your home to clean is going to be good to clean off your packages and groceries with. Now, we have hundreds of thousands of people, thankfully, recovering from this virus around the world. This next question is very, very interesting. Can someone who has recovered from COVID-19 pick up the virus from a carrier and then pass it on to someone else, in essence, serve as a conduit after their own recovery? It's so funny. I literally just got that same question on my Twitter. Uh, It is a really great question. Remember, we think there's 25 percent of infected cases are asymptomatic, meaning they don't have any symptoms. We think they can spread the virus to others. But after you've recovered, there's really no carrier state with coronavirus or as we think right now. So after you've recovered, you can't really transmit that same strain of virus. But again, the antibody protection, the immune response, when that happens, how robust it is in terms of future immunity or protection is all being looked at right now. All right, Dr. Jen Ashton, as always, we appreciate 
all of your important answers and you can submit your questions to Dr. Ashton on her Instagram at Dr. J. Ashton. Coming up next right here, when we come back, order in the court. One judge's unusual move in the COVID-19 crisis making one family extraordinarily happy. And you hear that song? Well, yes, that's the classic rocker taking a hit and turning it into an anthem for today's times. You're listening to an ABC News special, COVID-19, What You Need to Know. Once again, here is ABC News correspondent Amy Robach. Welcome back, everyone. Due to the COVID-19 pandemic, workplaces have been forced to think of new ways to continue getting their important work done in the safest way possible. And our nation's courts are no exception to this heartwarming story of one family's life-changing conference call. Hi, my name's Tanya. Hi, my name's Dominic. Hi, my name's Angel. Hi, my name's Christopher, and we are... The Parsons! We adopted Angel three days before Christmas in 2017. And Dominic, we met him few days before August 18th, but then after that we had a few sleepovers, which went really well. Uh, how did you guys like it? I loved it because I didn't, I never ever had a bed before. We knew how exciting Angel's adoption was and how much she loved her special day and how, how memorable it was for all of us that we were very excited for Dominic and our whole family to have this moment again. And we got word about a week or two ago that instead of going to the court, it's gonna be a conference call uh, with the judge and everybody, so it's not gonna be the party that it was going to be. Which is a big bummer, but still gonna be legal, still gonna be our son officially. Still a goofball. He's a ham. We're so happy that Dominic's going to be the official fourth member of our family. Um, a lot of people have it worse than we do, so um, just the good day. It's a happy day, right? Morning. This is Judge Cherry. Please raise your right hand. Do you solemnly swear or affirm that the testimony you will provide to this court will be the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth? I do. It is therefore ordered and decreed that Dominic Antonio Colon Nichols shall hereafter be the adopted child of Christopher Allen Parsons and Tanya Mae Parsons and shall be entitled to all the rights of a child and heir of said adopting parents and be subject to the duties of their child. The said Dominic Antonio Colon Nichols shall hereafter be known as Dominic Christopher Parsons by the court. Congratulations. You, two angels, your husband and wife, uh, are going to guarantee a life of happiness and love for this child. And the court is so grateful to you for stepping up and wanting to be those angels on earth for this child. And that's the end of a fairy tale. <laughs> wow, uh, I am literally fighting back tears. That was so beautiful. Joining us from his chambers in Pennsylvania is the judge who presided over the Parsons family adoption, the Honorable John F. Cherry. Welcome, Your Honor. What was that like seeing the impact you made on that beautiful Parsons family? Well, it, it's certainly emotional. All, all of the adoptions are, and uh, this was no different. 
Yeah, it was a little different because you made Dominic's adoption official over the phone. But I understand you usually do some very special things in your courtroom for adoptions. Tell us about that. Early on, I realized uh, many years ago, children have a great fear of the courtroom. It's unknown. It's an unknown for them. And so my wife and I came up with the idea of uh, having little stuffed animals, toys and trucks and so on that the children could come up and help themselves to as a part of Judge Cherry's treasure chest, we call it. So we started doing that. And really, you could see the difference, especially for children that were coming in from the first part uh, of the proceedings, which would have been the termination cases. They lost their fear of the courtroom and they couldn't wait to get up to the treasure chest. <laughs> That's beautiful. And I want to ask you this as a, as a juvenile dependency court judge. Talk about what presiding over adoptions means to you, not just professionally, but personally. Well, I've had a great interest in children all of my life. I'm a former teacher and coach and uh, I've worked with children for the balance of my life. It has a great effect on me personally because I'm there for the worst part of the matter. That is the horrific uh, scenarios that deal with these children who are removed from homes. And then you see the reverse after 18 months or 20 months, children are so resilient who are in loving, caring homes who come in totally changed, totally transformed. That's the deepest meaning for me of all of this. I love that. I have a question. You know, you usually get to meet all of these families in person. Do you plan on connecting with the Parsons family in person when this is all over? Oh, yes, because I made a promise that to all the children. I had uh, six adoptions that day that when this is over, they can all come to Judge Cherry's treasure chest. And, of course, <laughs> they won't let their parents forget that. No, they won't. That's a, that's a very big enticement there. <laughs> Judge John F. Cherry, thank you for all that you do. We certainly appreciate it. And stay safe. Thank you. This ABC News special, COVID-19, What You Need to Know, continues after this. You're listening to an ABC News special, COVID-19, what you need to know. Once again, here is ABC News correspondent Amy Robach. For so many, music has become one of the best ways to cope with the stress and isolation of being quarantined. And fortunately for all of us, some of the biggest names in music are lending a helping hand by offering free mini performances online like this one. That is rock legend Rick Springfield there and his bandmates offering up a free Zoom jam session for fans on social media. But guess what? It gets even better because Rick Springfield is joining us now from California. And you've changed the words from human touch to no human touch. When did you get the idea for us to switch up the song and make something out of it? Uh, well, I wanted, you know, I wanted to add a little humor to all the, the dark news that's coming down about the uh, virus. So I... Uh, the Human Touch song just seemed like a pretty obvious one to parody, so it worked out. <laughs> What's been the reaction that you've been getting from your fans? They love it. We're, um, it's got a lot, like you know over a couple of million views already, and uh, I'm also doing a um, uh, how to play Jesse's Girl in 60 seconds, but I keep getting interrupted with weird things. And Vast Generous and I have a uh, how to write how to write a song in 60 seconds too. So I'm going to have a lot of guests on and. Uh, 
that should be a lot of fun. And what are you hoping your fans take away from from all of this? Oh, I hope uh, it lifts their spirits. I mean, actually, every every artist that's doing something like this, it lifts their spirits too. I mean, just doing it uh, makes me feel good. So I'm hoping that uh, translates to uh, anyone that, that that tunes in out there. Rick Springfield, keep doing what you're doing. Thanks for being with us today. Thank you, guys. All right, we're going to turn now to our Dr. Jen Ashton for some final thoughts. Jen? I read something really interesting, Amy, that I wanted to share. It appeared in Forbes.com, and it's all about the traps, psychological and behavioral, that we may be subjected to. And it was really drawn on the experience of two doctors who responded to the SARS outbreak. The first one was denial, um, which we can see in any type of crisis situation. It's a protective mechanism. It's a defense mechanism. But if we experience denial, it can actually prevent us from taking appropriate steps. So I like to replace it with something more positive like compensation. So I'm not a really good cook, but I can clean up the kitchen or I can try a new recipe or something like that to help us deal with this situation. The second one is an attempt to over control our environment. We saw that with people rushing out and hoarding all kinds of supplies. Um, again, it's a response to this stressful situation. And as long as it's done properly, that can be a positive thing. Um, but if done to excess, we want to keep an eye out for that. And the last one was a thirst for good news. Mm. That is just human nature. And that's what you and I try to do um, here every day is look for some bright spot in this um, because it's going to be for a while. We're not through it yet. Um, but every day there are things that we can look at for psychological and, and physical benefits. So always Agreed. look for the good news. Agreed. There's always hope out there. Dr. Jen, thanks for bringing it each and every day. Yep. And that's what you need to know for this yep. Monday. Thank you for joining us. We're right back here tomorrow. ABC News. Honored. Winner of four Edward R. Murrow Awards. ABC News, America's number one news choice. If keeping up with the news feels like it's become a chore, check out Start Here. The daily podcast from ABC News. Start Here is quick and simple. Every morning you'll hear the news and why it matters. Subscribe to Start Here and listen for free now, wherever you get your podcasts. 